Have you ever walked into a large beauty retailer and felt lost and overwhelmed and wished there was a better option? Enter Storied Beauty, a skincare boutique and concierge service based in Dallas, Texas, carrying a tightly edited collection of vetted brands from across the world. Founder Lindsay Friedman offers complimentary skincare concierge sessions to guide her clients through an often overwhelming and saturated beauty industry. Lindsay works with clients all over the country, helping them to develop a regimen that works for their lifestyles. She will review what you're currently using and either make adjustments or suggest new products that complement your existing routine. Storied Beauty's curation is nearly all women-owned lines that cannot be found at every local big box store. Your concierge session includes a hand-holding, customized experience for testing and selecting products, as well as guidance on proper methods of application. While working for one of the largest international skincare companies, Lindsay helped train beauty advisors across the country to properly assess customers' needs. She has since studied the science behind skincare and will help guide you through the complexities of ingredients and create a skincare story tailored to you. Please reach out to Lindsay to schedule a free concierge session or visit her website, storied-beauty.com and on Instagram at storiedbeauty. We are thrilled to have her as our sponsor for the month of May. Hi, everyone. I am Emily Landers, and this is How She Do That, a podcast answering that question each episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of How'd She Do That with my friend Claire Hudson, the founder of Oso and Me. I know you guys are going to enjoy my conversation with Claire and getting to know Oso, which is a children's clothing brand, and how she got started. This is such a fun conversation. It's great for all ages, but it was really cool to hear about how Claire stepped in to entrepreneurship a little bit later in life. She had her kiddos, and then she thought, you know what? I think that there is somewhere in the market that I could be doing a little bit more and I could be helping quite a few people. You guys are going to enjoy the story behind that with her son. So Claire, thank you so much for your time. And also thank you to previous guest Natalie Steen, who joined me on episode 78 for the connection and recommendation of Claire joining me. Uh, Natalie is the founder of the Nat Note. If you're not familiar, do head over to her episode after this one. You can put it in the queue. And while you're at it, go ahead and subscribe to How'd She Do That over on Apple. Well, I hope you all had a great weekend. It was a long weekend, enjoying Memorial Day, kicking off summer. I hope that you all were able to take a moment to pause and to remember, and hopefully if you have them in your life, thank those who have served our country. I saw a quote yesterday that I thought was so fitting and I wanted to share. This is from a woman named Alyssa Rosenheck. I'm not very familiar with her, but did see this on social yesterday. A way to honor the lives lost to protect our freedom is to show up each day and choose service over social media and community over conflict, sending peace and gratitude this Memorial Day. And I just loved that. Service over social media. Hmm, how can I implement that into my own life? I gotta think about that one. Well, you guys, if you are interested in more about the BTS of HSDT, the behind the scenes of the podcast, we want you to join us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash how'd she do that provides the full BTS of all things 
how'd she do that and how we are building this, how we're growing. Patreon will know that I recently began working with a business consultant. We are pulling data from the podcast and we are near one million plays. It may even happen this week. And we are so excited about all that we're learning about the podcast, all that I'm learning throughout the process. And all of that is shared over on Patreon, patreon.com slash how'd she do that. We also have my French Riviera vlog, how I manage my time, day in the life, Q&A. And I even did a special how'd she do that podcast episode where I answered the questions that I usually ask guests. That's five additional episodes episodes a month for just eight bucks. And it's a great way to support all that we're doing here at HSDT. So I hope that you'll join us over on Patreon. And one of our very favorite things, of course, is to hear from you all over on Apple. There are thousands of you listening today. So if just a handful would take a moment to go and leave us a five-star review, it would mean the world. My team keeps up with those. They love reading them. And of course, it's a great way for others to find the show. So thank you guys for leaving us a five-star review as well as subscribing. All right, guys, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation. Here is Claire Hudson on How'd She Do That? Today's guest, Claire Hudson, is the founder of Oso oh and Me, a brand dedicated to making the highest quality of children's clothes that function just as perfectly on the playground as at the dinner table, a brand that both moms and kids adore. Born and raised on a ranch in Napa, Claire Hudson never stopped moving. Climbing trees, raising animals, and working her family's vineyards made up her classroom. And an internship at Diane von Furstenberg after high school ignited her passion for design and led her to receiving a degree from Parsons Paris and a job with Ted Muling, a legendary jewelry designer in New York. After her son was born, Claire realized there was a huge gap in the children's clothing market. Why couldn't beautiful clothes also be functional? Combining her outdoorsy childhood memories with her high design experience, she founded Oso and Me. When Claire isn't designing new pieces or speaking with customers, she is likely spending time with her family, which includes her boyfriend, Jeff, her son, and two daughters. Claire, welcome to How'd She Do That? Thank you so much for having me. It is kind of funny to hear your bio a little bit. <laughs> right? You're sitting there, wait, thinking, oh, is that me? I have done quite a few things. I've been, <laughs> around, I've been around. Oh, my goodness. Well, and two, I had to make a, a quick side note, and I don't know if anyone's mentioned this to you. I'm sure they have. But we have our very own Hallie Parker on the show today as well with your upbringing, a little parent trap nod. Oh. But how fun to hear that. Has anyone ever said, hey, Hallie Parker to you? No, no, not at all. But although I will say uh, Napa's become a lot more well known from when I grew up there. And I yes. do remember saying I live in Napa and people would say where, but they don't do that anymore. <laughs> no, I would. I wouldn't think so. I wouldn't think so. Oh yeah. my goodness! Well, it's so fun to to hear just right off the bat the connection to your childhood and and also Oso. But you've listened. You've listened to the podcast, and so you know we love to kind of kick things off from the beginning. Maybe you tell us a little bit more about your upbringing, and then yeah, ultimately where you went to school. Well, I was born in Napa, and I have two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother. And my dad owned a, a winery. 
He grew grapes and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. We spent the majority of our time, I say we, my my brothers and I spent the majority of our time outdoors. Mm. I learned how to make mud pies at a really young age. We came (laughs) home filthy every day. Now, what was interesting about that, aside from just it being super ideal, was also that my mother had us immaculately dressed the entire time. So (laughs) my grandmother, my dad's mom lived in Europe. And my mother, when we went to visit, would go with a couple suitcases empty and would come back with clothes for all of us kids. And so I was in dirndls and smock dresses and my brothers were in lederhosen. I mean, it was uh, (laughs) back at it, like a little bit odd, but I would say that we never felt like our clothes were too precious to play in. And we always sat down for dinner, you know, all together as a family. And that was really important. And I think we learned how to communicate really well at a young age. And I think that that was sort of the most impressive tool that I learned during my early childhood years was that insistence that my parents had in communicating with us on how our day was every night and also how to communicate with them, asking them how their day was. And I think because of that, I can probably just about talk to anybody at any time, (laughs) which is really nice. Uh, And it was kind of a, you know, we got to come together every evening and spend a lot of time outdoors and learn how to communicate. Mm. Well, it's, it's so fun even just to hear the thought of, okay, your mom's, yes, she's, she's taking over those empty suitcases, packing them full, (laughs) dressing her darling kiddos as they run around and and make mud pies and have what sounds like a really idyllic and beautiful childhood. And it's interesting to know how, of course, we'll, we'll dive into it, but, but your brand, it's not everyone has the opportunity to look back on their childhood so fondly and kind of see the, the themes that I'm already sensing or Oso and me, but at a young age, you mentioned, you know, just your love of being outdoors, love of animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you're stepping into, you know, young adulthood and, and you're thinking about where you're going to school, what was the hope and dream of a young Claire? What were you thinking you would do at some point in your life and career? Well, actually, when I was, I guess when I was in elementary school, I had dreams of being James Bond. I really, <laughs> I thought that that would be maybe the coolest job of all time. I went to high school on the East Coast. And at that point, I wanted to be a biologist. I went to a school in upstate New York. And I had really become very enthralled with horseback riding and they had horseback riding and they also had a really incredible biology program. And once I went, and I think the biology was mostly because we spent all of our time outdoors and my dad was really good at identifying birds and animals. And we were always encouraged to look for tracks. So biology and how sort of nature worked, um, was really of an interest to me in my teen years. Once I was at high school, I I had this constitutional law teacher and I thought, man, if I could try and convince people of something that they don't believe in, so being a lawyer, mm-hmm. I I could do that. I could convince people 
of something they didn't originally believe in by <laughs> talking to them. That to me seems like maybe the epitome of success. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, so very well said. Law, yeah. Constitutional law became something I was really obsessed with. And then I went to school in Washington, D.C. at American University, and that lasted about one semester. September 11th happened after that. I had interned while I was there at American. And I think being in D.C. during that time was a little bit, it just felt not good to me. And I had spent a, a good amount of time in Manhattan and I had had my first internship between high school ending and, and my one semester at American starting. And I had loved it. It was definitely not constitutional law, but <laughs> I had found it to just be the most incredible experience. And I wanted to go back to New York and I was allowed to go back to New York. My parents said, okay, you can take a break from school, but you have to get a job and you have to enroll in classes. So I enrolled in classes and I went back to New York and I went back to my internship, which was at um, Diana and Furschenberg. And I'm not sure that I was the most helpful intern, to be honest with you, <laughs> but I was really allowed a lot of creativity. I, I did sort of special projects for Diane. So I painted park benches for the 100th anniversary of Central Park. And so each artist would donate an item. And so I would, I would take templates from her and, and make those art projects. And I would do oh, wow. some PR stuff and then I would help out with fashion shows. And I don't know what my bosses would actually say that I did when I was there or <laughs> if I was very good at it, but I was young and I probably could have done a little bit more than what I did. Yeah, to be honest, totally honest. Yes. Uh, well, it's fun to think of you running around the city, and I'm—I mean, I'm impressed with your parents because, like you mentioned, the time frame that we're we're discussing. I think everyone was on high alert. That was a terrifying time, and for you to be back in the city and to be there directly after, and you are—you you take that internship on. And how long are you at DVF? I'm at DVF. I, I start going back to school. So I yep. go, I enroll at Parsons and I'm at school and the internship. They were very flexible with me there and they allowed me to sort of make my own hours. It may have been because I wasn't that useful, but <laughs> I sometimes I need to be a little bit more confident about how I speak mm. about myself, but I think I was useful. I mm. wasn't the best intern. In any case, I went to Parsons. I had flexible hours at DVF. And then my parents got divorced. And for some reason, I mean, they had been married my whole life. I was 21 yeah. um, when they got divorced. And it just kind of turned me for a little bit of a loop there. And my grandmother, who I previously mentioned, lived in Paris. And I had always sort of wanted to know her a little bit more. And I decided, well, there's a Parsons in Paris. I am going to pack my bags and go and enroll in that school instead. And mm. I, you will see a theme here. I'm 
pretty stubborn. Once I think of an idea <laughs> of I'm going to leave American University, <laughs> I'm going back to New York, or I am now leaving New York and I am going to move to Paris. I don't think my parents had a lot of choice. I said I was going to do it. So now I'm going to do it. Is that, do you think being an only daughter, where do you think that comes from? I do. I think that being a female and a middle child, I wasn't, I wasn't doing like super girly things. There was a wood shop and a machine shop on the ranch and I was sorting nails and screws and nuts and bolts and building things and making forts. And I had a, you know, two brothers and I would say I was probably the most feisty out of the two of them. That may (laughs) still be the case. My poor parents. I think that I was a difficult child. I don't think that I was the easiest to manage. And I look at my own children now, actually, as a mom, and I don't see it as a negative. And in Mm. fact, I don't see my children as difficult. I see what some people may look at as not great qualities. I look at those qualities in myself and I actually say, that makes me who I am. And Mm. there's real positives that come out of those, you know, Mm. quote unquote, negative aspects of your personality. And I think that stubbornness and determination and the idea that you can do anything is, is probably why I'm here today. Right. Yeah. And is ultimately the the driving force of your story. I mean, even to the point of, okay, I'm moving here. I'm moving here. Oh, by the way, I've always wanted to know this grandmother. I'm going to Paris. It's like the theme is already so clear to me, Claire. It's so fun to hear. But okay, so you do. You end up in Paris. You move to Paris to get to know to, to get to know grandmother better, but also to go to Parsons. So what did that season look like for you? And at this stage in your life, what are you thinking is happening post Parsons? I think at this point, I stopped thinking about what I was going to be doing afterwards. Yeah. I was yeah. going to school for a BBA. So I really, I think that being at DVF, I think, I mean, watching DVF work is, I think maybe one of the more incredible things that I've I've seen. And in fact, actually my father too, but just a sheer determination and incredible force of nature and being able to be a woman owning your own business, having a full company, that confidence that she exudes was really pivotal for me. And I had worked in marketing at DV, I had interned at marketing at DVF. And so I went to school for a BBA and that is a bachelor's in business marketing, I believe is what they called it. Oh wow! I probably could have gotten more out of that if I had tried a little bit harder. <laughs> and when I was at in Paris, I didn't really think about what I was going to do afterwards. I didn't have a real sense of, oh my God, school's going to end and I'm going to need, like, what are you going to do? I ended up staying in France for almost five years. My grandmother became very ill and I actually moved back. My first job, I moved back. She was put into a hospital in Texas. Oh, wow. Which is where uh, my uncle lives and where my, where my dad's family is from. And I went back to California 
I had finished school. I went back to California and I got my my first real, real job as a waitress in yeah. Napa and yeah. at this bakery that I had spent my whole childhood going to. And I loved it. I loved being a waitress. In fact, to this day, the only other job I've loved that much was the job that I currently have. I liked talking to people. I liked getting things done. It was very methodical. It was not that difficult. I got up early. I left late. It was, it was there was just something like my time was, I didn't have to think too hard. And, hmm. and at the same time, I could socialize and talk, which you can tell um, <laughs> I'm a talker. God, I feel bad for anyone who's having to listen to this whole thing. It's just, uh, I call it at work, my, my morning monologue. <laughs> Are you kidding? Everyone is loving your, whether this be a morning monologue to people or an afternoon or an evening, whatever time they're listening, I have no doubt that they're enjoying it as much as I am. And, and, and two, just, no, I mean, all of it, it's so fun to hear how it's woven through and to your point of that actually being a waitress in Napa, that was, you know, the equivalent of, to the role you're doing now on the spectrum of, of enjoyment which yes. I think speaks a lot to, to you, to your personality. And so you are, you're, you're there. How long did you have that role? And, and what was the rumblings of, okay, shoot, I, I might need to, as much as I'm enjoying this, I might be doing something else. I mean, I think there are kind of two people in the world. One that like enjoys moving back to their hometown. Yep. And one that's like, what am I doing in my hometown? And and I fall into the second category Hmm. and I was there for a short period of time before I, I left. I went back. I still hadn't packed all of my bags from Paris. I went back, packed up everything else and moved back to New York. And at that point I got a receptionist job. I mean, here I am, I've graduated from an incredible college And the two jobs that in my thought process at that time that I could do were a waitressing job and a receptionist job. And I think that that was because at that time I didn't have a lot of confidence that I could do anything more than that, Mm. which is a shame. I wish I could shake that like, you know, 20 year old self and say, Mm there's so much more here and you are able to do more. And luckily throughout my life, I have, I have discovered that, but I became a receptionist at a interior design firm. A friend of a friend said there was a job opening. And I think I was polished enough to be the first person that someone saw when they walked <laughs> in the door. And I mean, not every day, that's for sure. <laughs> On my initial interview, maybe I was polished enough, really went downhill after that. In any case, I decided to go back to school again. And I went to school at GIA, which is the Gemological Institute of America. Yes. And I got a degree in gemology, which I think when I say that, I think, oh God, degree in gemology. If you don't know, it's actually really hard to get. You study stones all day long and you learn to identify them. It's crazy. After I went to school there, I was offered a job at GIA. So that's when people send in their jewelry or stones 
to get their stones graded. I would be the person grading them. And I, it was a night shift job and they have night shift jobs because people from all over the world are trying to get their stones with a certificate. And I had another nighttime job, which was (laughs) going out. Um, And I was, again, you know, a little young and dumb. And I got a different job. I got a job at Ted Mewling. And I thought that maybe I would design jewelry there. I love his jewelry. My God, it's so beautiful. You should look at it. He has this beautiful design space in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. And... I went and I interviewed, and the day that I interviewed, I think his longtime store manager had just quit, and so I got that job. So um, oh. I got that job, and I and I did like that job a lot. I got to set out all the jewelry, and every morning, every morning it was a different display. So that aspect was nice. I don't think. At this point in my life, I didn't find as much joy as I found as being a waitress. So Mm. receptionist and store clerk, what I was good at was talking to people Mm -hmm. and communicating. And what I found at Ted Mewling was I was really good at selling things. And I I could sell, I could kind of tell what somebody wanted and I could say what they wanted to hear in Mm. order to sell what I was trying to sell. And I had met Jeff. So Jeff, I mean, I guess I call him my boyfriend because we never got married, but he is basically my husband. We've been together for 13 years and Jeff, love my life. In any case, Jeff and I met in New York and we decided that we didn't want to get married, but we wanted to have kids. And so when I became pregnant with our first child, Jacqueline, who's now... 10, I really wanted to be a mom. My mom had been this incredible part of my life growing up and really influential for me. And I wanted to be able to give that to my kids as well. And so I quit working at Ted Mewling shortly before I was due. I had Jack Lee. We lived in New York and Jackley became really sick. He was born with a birth defect and we decided to move to California to be closer to family. And we moved to San Francisco. It's a lot of moving here. I don't know if all your other guests just talk about where they moved. <laughs> no, but you know what? It's so, it's so fun to hear because this isn't something we would necessarily know about you. So to have all the touch points, I'm sure listeners in every location, they're thinking, oh, she was here. Oh, she was there. So I'm enjoying it. Well, I'm at the end of the moving part because now I'm in San Francisco <laughs> and I've been here. I've been here now for uh, nine years. So don't oh worry. That part of my life of moving part is, <laughs> don't worry, I don't have to talk about it anymore. But I will say hmm. I, I am a talker and I'm a, a roundabout thinker. And I do think hmm. that I, I've said all those things because they really do affect how I've, how I started Oso. Yeah. And they really are a roundabout way of explaining how I did this, right? right? 
Right. Oh, absolutely. And every step along the way, you know, without it, you you likely, perhaps, I mean, I, I can't say for sure, but there could have been an element of, like you said earlier, I don't know if I can do this. Is this something yeah. that I want to do? But yeah. ultimately you do, you turn around, you, Jack Lee, Jeff, you guys are back in California. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing mm-hmm. there's a season that, like you said, you're back to be closer to family, get Jack Lee healthy and, and whatnot. And tell me if I'm wrong. Oh, so there's a stirring at this stage. Is it right that it's with Jack Lee that you're thinking, huh, I might be able to do something here. Yes. So Jack Lee was born at 11 and a half pounds. That's huge for anyone who's not had a child. I did not have gestational diabetes. He's just huge. He is now 10 years old. He wears a size 10 men's shoe and he comes up to my eyes. So he's, oh uh, he is five foot two at 10 years old. He wears a size 16 clothes. So this oh is just, he is just a big guy. Yes. And what's interesting about becoming a first time mom and what I have found interesting among so many other things, but when it comes in particular to clothing, because that's what we're here for, right? Is that you have this like blank slate that you're working with. You kind of remember what your parents dressed you in. I mean, I remember lederhosen and let me tell you, I was not <laughs> going to put my children in lederhosen. So I had a real blank slate of where do I go and buy clothes for my kids? And so you have this this little period of time where you test out clothes and does this work? Do you like it? Does it wear well? Does it wash well? You realize that they grow so fast. And so clothes really became a big part of my life with Jack Lee, you know, especially with the fact that he didn't fit into the normal size. So clothes didn't fit him the way a normal size baby would would fit into clothes. Oh my goodness. So I'm thinking of, do you say 11 and a half pounds? Yes. That is huge. That is, that is like the average size of a three month old baby. 100%. Oh my gosh. Well, and just the element, yeah. Within your story of that, you're looking around for clothes. You're thinking, okay, my, my precious angel, Jack Lee, he is, (laughs) we've got to find something different for him. So what was that early rumbling of Hey, maybe, maybe I'll make something. It happened really, really fast after I had Jack Lee. You know, you look at those first like bills and you're like, I've spent how much on my children's clothes and I still have to buy more. (laughs) And every three months I have to buy more clothes. And I found that aspect that you were having to buy clothes constantly for your children frustrating. I also found that I was buying pants for my son who was in a diaper and they had like zippers and buttons on them. And I thought, (laughs) why is there a zipper and a button? Like the zipper, it just didn't make sense to me. A lot of the clothes didn't make sense. And, and oddly, my mother had kept a lot of our kids clothes, uh, my clothes growing up. And I was the first the first one in my family to have a baby. And I received a lot of their hand-me-downs and the clothes that lasted the longest were these clothes that were made, you know, way back when in a very traditional way that had extra buttons and sort of growable features. And Mm. I thought, God, these are a total pain in the ass to launder and take care of, but they're kind of genius. 
and with a little bit of elastic added here and there and with better fabric, um, more washable, care-friendly fabric, you could make much better clothes. So I think ultimately Jack Lee was like my first foray into like a huge amount of R&D. Mm-hmm. And I did that for the next three years. I also really suffered from postpartum. So this idea of what I really wanted to be was this mom who was there and could give herself fully to her children was really something that I discovered was did not come naturally to me. And, and it also, when I became pregnant with my second, Cecil, you know, two and a half years later was something I was really scared about of, oh my God, I can't be like that again. And what am I going to do? And so this idea of, okay, you've been saying you wanted to make children's clothes for two years, you're going to go ahead and do it. And so I put things in place while I was pregnant. I, I found a pattern maker and I hired a nanny for the first time. And I figured out how to start this so that once Cecil was born, I could give myself some time to like recover and be there. And just in case I got really ups, like, you know, postpartum hit me really hard again, that I needed to have that time. Cecil was due in October. I think I set myself a goal of January that I would start the company in January. Okay. So little by little, that's what I did. And it was the funny things I had never learned how to do. I had to register the business and I needed a, a business bank account. And right. where was I going to make these clothes? How was I going to find fabric? Uh, right. I had no experience, none whatsoever in manufacturing clothes. So I think being naive actually allowed for me to actually continue going down this road because it is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought it was going to give me more time with my kids. I thought if I owned my own company, I would have more time Mm -hmm. to spend and more flexibility to spend with my kids, which is the farthest thing from the truth that I have experienced Mm. with my company. No, it's true though. I I just was speaking with someone who would definitely agree with that, with that sentiment, but okay. So it's so fun to hear because like you said, there were all these elements that you didn't know how to do, but you step forward, you do them. What year was this? What year would you say? Oh, so officially launched. Well, it's interesting because I started making the clothes officially in 2017. Wow. Right. 2017 officially. But I don't think I actually tried to genuinely sell them for like another two years. Technically I had a website, so I had a website and my first employee, official full-time employee came on the day the website launched. I had met her at a trade show. She's actually now my co-founder, Marie Claire. And she and I designed all the prints together. And I, I definitely don't think I could have done all of that I've done without Marie Claire. And so I work on it for about two years and then I launch a website. And then I think I really try and start selling it 
maybe about two more years. So like 2019, Mm. and we start getting traction. We designed this short called the Bingo Short, and we still have it. It's our best-selling product. We probably sell more Bingo Shorts than we sell anything else. It is very well-loved, and I think that happens so organically sales start coming in and and mm. we have doubled our business every single year since 2019 wow and i i think we've done that organically because the product is good mm. and i don't i pay attention to every single detail I am definitely not a micromanager, mm-hmm. but I do look at every detail. We produce all of our trims. I know everything about our factories. I do all of the costing. I've done every single job at this company. And so I think we're a small team. We're nine people here in San Francisco. I think that our commitment to designing for functionality, which comes from that problem with that I had with my firstborn. And then, of course, with my girls, too, of just constantly thinking, where is this parent in their like parent life stage? And where is this child in their development stage? So we design mm-hmm. items that are specific for newborns and I won't make items in a newborn size that I don't think are going to be functional for a newborn. Mm-hmm. And then we think about everything from uh, the potty training stage to crawling. So our pants at that crawling stage really need to be able to withstand a lot of knees on the ground Mm -hmm. and we have bloomers for every dress so that my daughters would be crawling on the ground and their dress would be getting caught in their knees. And Mm -hmm. so I, if you have a bloomer, you can just tuck that dress in when they want to start crawling and all of our pants pull on and pull off because when you're potty training, the the thing you want most is to be able to rip off those pants real <laughs> anywhere. Yeah. So I think, how did I do this? I did it through a lot of really, really hard work and saying this was my goal from day one. And I have not changed that goal from, mm. from the second I started this to now, I have not changed why we exist. Mm -hmm. Why am I making children's clothes? And every single time I've come up against something difficult, it makes me want to figure it out. I think that that goes back to me being raised outdoors of like, Mm. my parents weren't there to figure it out for me. You know, I was climbing a tree. I couldn't get down. How do I get down? There's always an answer. You just have to find it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to your point, all the way tying it back to yeah, your upbringing and, and figuring it out as you go, which you've done throughout your career. I would be curious to know, because it's amazing to hear just the different steps and even to, for you to kind of share with us more of the design side of things as you're mm-hmm. thinking, okay, what is this age doing? What are they? They're pulling up, they're crawling. What, what do we need here? What does mom need here? What do they need here? Um, which I think makes Oso so unique. I would love to know too, what would you say is maybe an instance in your career or life really that you'd say maybe failure actually helped shape it? 
I failed so many times. I can't even count them on one hand. I started a business that I had no experience in. And I was very fortunate financially to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I know that, that that is the reason Oso has been able to do what it's been able to do or part of the reason. Obviously, I think stubbornness really comes into play there. But failure, I would say there has been a relationship in my life that I look at that I would say is is not that successful. And I have learned so much about myself and about how to value myself and how to value other people through sort of processing that relationship. And I would say, I would say through my relationships and looking at myself, what could be looked at as maybe a negative or a failure has turned into like a a real positive. I believe that I communicate better with my employees. Mm. I believe that I communicate better with Jeff. I believe I communicate better with myself. And I, I think it's hard to pinpoint a failure because I really, this is so cheesy, but (laughs) I really, I have failed a lot of times but none of them are really failures because mm-hmm. the failure, oh God, it's so cheesy. I can't even say it. <laughs> say the it. failure creates a success in the end mm-hmm. if you work hard enough at it. Yeah. And I have somehow become an optimist in my life. And I genuinely believe that the hardest things that have happened in my life, I guess they open up doors to something beautiful and something better. Mm. And I I would say that the failures in my life have mostly been around my ability to communicate and my ability to be honest with myself. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's constant. I hope that I continue to have that failure for the rest of my life so that I can continue to take responsibility and uh, make changes. Mm. Wow. Well, beautifully said. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> beautifully said. And and kind of on the flip side of failure, I would I would think this is a fun one to answer, perhaps. Although yes. that was beautifully said. I, I would love to know, and this is also a bit of a loaded question. We we like to wrap with these I loaded. Love loaded questions. Well, well, I you're really, really good at them. You're really I good love- at them. So I do. I just want to ask you. You know, perhaps what would you say is the greatest lesson you have learned? Oh, people. Mm. It, it, I think people, and that doesn't just have to be your employees. It's the people that support you. Right. So, I mean, Jeff, you know, we, we generally all love the people that we're with, right. Mm-hmm. Um, or let's hope that that's the case for most people. But I would say that Jeff is my biggest champion, my biggest supporter. He uh, picks up kids from school. He makes dinner at night. He knows more about what the kid's schedule is than I do. And he has a full-time job. So it is incredible to be able to be a parent with somebody who is as involved as that. Mm. So I would say 
I would say that people in general, we were a four person. I mean, that's my personal life, which of course I always just throw my personal life out there, but also, (laughs) also I would say we were a four person team and we were growing and we were doing well. And as we invested in people, it like changed everything. It changed everything. I think I answered the question, but now I can't even remember what the question was. <laughs> no, so no, that was amazing. I mean, just thinking about the greatest lesson you have learned and and to tie it in, it's the relationships, it's the people. And like you just said, to be able to invest in people, that was really the the turning point for your the business side of things. But then thank you. Thank you for being yeah, so I open. Think letting, I think my lesson is letting people support support the work that you do. So mm-hmm. whether it be in your personal life and allowing them to have that autonomy to support you. And then mm-hmm. I think for my employees, allowing them to um, not only give you feedback, but also allowing them some autonomy as well mm-hmm. um, to really become involved in the work that is being done. So good. So good. And I know I'm sure that your employees and those that work with you and those that you do life with would would say, okay, yeah, because that's something that you're good at. You're able to empower them and allow, gosh, those nine people, nine people in San Fran. They are the best. Oh, I have gosh. to say, I, I love coming to work every day. I love it. And I love it because of what we do, but because of the people here. I love my girls. Oh, it's so it's so fun to hear. It's so amazing to hear that from a founder because that's not always the case. And I think it says a lot about you and your leadership and the team and to be able to move forward and, and to be able to make these beautiful, darling, functional, awesome clothing that moms and the kids can enjoy. I have learned one thing as I've gotten to know you a little bit better and in prepping for this call, there's always something coming up with you guys. With Oso, y'all are always up to something. So you tell us what's what's next for you. Our poor uh, technical designer here at Oso, I am constantly thinking of maybe the next best amazing product. We we designed a jersey a couple years ago that I thought I was never going to make t-shirts. And our t-shirt is so soft. I've even made them for my husband, Jeff. I've made them for <laughs> my 10-year-old who wears a size 16 shirt, <laughs> even though we don't make them for Oso because the jersey is so good. So mm. we've got, let's see, we've, I'm looking at my board right now of all the styles that are coming out. We are trying oh, to make... Yeah more jersey products so things that look like you can go and sit down at a nice dinner table but that are really easy and comfy for kids to wear so jersey shirts with collars and we have something coming out it's called oh so play it's coming out this fall it's maybe my very favorite thing we've made. It's out of sweatpant material. So I'm just oh. going to leave it at that. Oh it's coming out goodness. in uh, September. And okay. I'm really excited about that. Oh my goodness. Well, I'm glad I asked. I knew that there's something. You guys are always, always up to something. Always. always we've up like tripled our pant colors for oh. fall. So we've got lots of pants coming. With oh. Just pants, pants, pants. <laughs> well, we're ready for them. I know listeners are ready for them as well and are excited. Oh my gosh. Claire, this has been so much fun. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Is Is there anything that we didn't cover that you'd like to? 
oh my God, don't even open up that question to me because you'll be here for another two hours. No, 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 not at all. I, I loved the questions. I I hope I was able to let you in on, on what it is to have Oso and me and mm-hmm. how I came to here. But no, I, God, literally, I will talk for another three hours if you ask. Well, you know. well, you know what? I'll just throw this out here. Perhaps there's a part two at some point because I've oh thoroughly- no, I've, no one wants to hear this again. I've my thoroughly goodness. enjoyed, I've thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> our conversation, Claire. Maybe the part two is is not a recording. Maybe the, maybe it's a San Fran or, or a LA visit, but oh my sure. gosh. Um, sure. I was a little afraid it was going to be live and I was going to be swearing left and right. So I'm just uh, <laughs> glad that that wasn't the case. Not a at all, not at all. But I mean, too, it's just been so fun to hear the, the different places that you've, you know, lived, all of the different, you know, people that you've met, your different experiences, all that good stuff. And it always kind of ties together nicely with a question I love to ask guests, which which would be, who do you know that should maybe come on and share their story? Well, actually, there is a woman who I love, and I have not asked her before this, but it just popped into my head. Mm. She also works here in the Presidio, which is where the Oso offices are, and she is so inspiring. She has like a cult following around the world. Her name's April Gargiulo, and she started a company called Vintner's Daughter. Mm. They make face oil that people love, like just love. And I remember when she started it and she's also from Napa. And I remember when she started it and told me, oh, I'm starting this company. And I just, it was before Oso had really launched. And I just thought, God, how brave, like how Mm -hmm. incredible. And she is a serious powerhouse and just like the most lovely person to talk to as well. Oh, such an awesome recommendation. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad that I asked and you all will have to stay tuned for a potential episode with April, but do check. Yes. Do check her out. Oh, so, so fun. And uh, yes, such a great recommendation. Well, Claire, I know that many listeners have likely looked you up on Instagram. Perhaps they've been shopping mm-hmm. while they were listening. But I hope so. Yes, I hope so too. <laughs> Where can listeners connect with you? Well, I don't actually have my own Instagram account because I I don't think anyone wants me personally on Instagram. <laughs> but you can DM Oso and me. That's the at thing. And then Oso and me. I'm literally technical technology. Oh, I can't even say that word. I'm like a dinosaur <laughs> when it comes to tech. But then also I secretly check every single info at Oso and Me email that comes in. So all the customer service requests, I still check them all. Ooh. I love seeing what people are writing in. And I think that communicating with our customers is so key to figuring out solutions to new products. So you can always write info at osoandme.com and I will most likely read it. Oh my goodness. Well, we found the secret way to connect with you. I know. I I love it. Well, Claire, this has been such a blast. I can't thank you enough. And thank you so Mm -hmm. much for joining me today. Well, I'm so glad that Natalie introduced us. She is also just like a totally amazing woman. And Mm -hmm. I love listening to your podcast. I hope I didn't scare away too many of your followers. (laughs) Not at all. And yes, (laughs) Natalie Steen, previous guest, amazing. Adore her and so grateful for for the introduction. Claire, thank you again. 
Thank you all for listening to today's episode brought to you by Storied Beauty. Head over to storiedbeauty.com for 15% off with the code HSDT15. Thank you, Lindsay, for such an awesome month. I am Emily Landers. You can follow me on Instagram at Emily Landers and the podcast at How'd She Do That Podcast. We look forward to speaking with you next week, new episode on Tuesday. Talk to you soon.